Hello and welcome. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns with the WPFW News Team. This is Friday Evening Fireside, a long-form version of our Monday morning news program. We're bringing you three extended interviews from last Monday. As always, our intention is to preserve the discursive nature of our work and share that with our listeners. In this edition of Friday Evening Fireside, I learn about past and present political violence in Rwanda with genocide survivor Claude Garabuke. WPFW News Director and Monday Morning QB host Askia Mohammed offers two extended conversations. One preaches the virtues of live jazz with musician and WPFW programmer Rusty Hassan. And first up, Askia asks the Reverend Dr. William Butler, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, what his stance is on ending the Senate filibuster. People's Campaign, also our uh, Prophetic Faith Leaders Council. Uh, uh, we're against the continuous use of the filibuster, number one, because it was not the intention of the Senate or the House of Representatives from the beginning. Uh, these are rules. This is a rule that was put in place, um, uh, you know, kind of in the, what I call the old good old boys club at a time when it was all white men. And there was an attempt to appease uh, senators who were committed to slaveholding. You know, the filibuster really became in use in the mid, the, the early 1800s. Uh, and the filibuster was used to filibuster every, every piece of anti-slavery um, legislation. Uh, in fact, many times you couldn't even put anti-slavery legislation on the floor. But in addition to that, it keeps the Senate from being honest. The Senate remains arcane. It, it, and, it, and, it, and, and, and contrary to what Senator Manchin says, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute, it doesn't bring people together. The word filibuster means to talk to death. And one translation means to rob. It actually pushes people apart. And what it does is it keeps us from dealing with issues we should have dealt with. Now, we can't just have a race analysis, though. Because the filibuster was used to filibuster women's suffrage, the right to vote for women. It was used to uphold um, labor rights. In fact, in the New Deal, the filibuster over an anti-lynching law was used in such a way that it forced Franklin Delano Roosevelt to give up fighting for the anti-lynching law so that he could pass parts of the New Deal. Uh, the filibuster was used to block the creation of a consumer protection agency. Uh, now it's being used to block raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. There's a threat to block uh, the H.R. 1 Protect Democracy Expand Voting Rights Bill. There's a threat to block uh, fixing the Voting Rights Act. You know, ever since June 25, 2013, when the Supreme Court gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, the very next day, because of the Supreme Court's ruling, the Congress could have fixed the Voting Rights Act. Instead, Mitch McConnell and others used the filibuster uh, to block any work 
And so here we are over 2,800, almost 2,850 days later, seven years later, and we have less voting rights today than we had 1965, which is why all of these states are filing these bills because they know that they don't have to, particularly in the South, that they don't have to go through a preclearance. And why is that? Because they have filibustered and engaged in interposition and nullification. We cannot have a, a, a filibuster that allows even debate, even debate. And the way it's done today, it used to be you had to stay on the floor to keep the filibuster alive. Now you can just say you have it. And, and that disallows any debate on living wages, health care, infrastructure, public education, voting rights, civil rights. And, the, and people do not get to see where these senators really stand on issues. This now that's, is not the way a democracy is supposed to work, and it only protects a minority of extremists in the in the Senate. It doesn't protect the rights of minority people in the country. When you say a minority of extremists, this is exactly what the defenders say, that it does protect minority rights, not extremists. Yeah, the, the minority. <laughs> it, it protects the minority rights of the ruling classes senators in the Senate, those who cater the corporations and cater the money. It protects them because two things happen. They don't have to show where they really stand on issues that 80% of the American people want. And even if 80% of the American people didn't want it, the the, 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 the demand of our Constitution to establish justice and, and provide equal protection under the law demands certain things. There's no reason that somebody like, say, Senator Manchin, uh, not only does he have, you know, this this vote because the Senate is even right now, but he says he will not challenge the filibuster. Well, if Senator Manchin is saying that he will allow living wages to be, uh, be filibustered, he doesn't care about the 352,000 people in his state that make less than a living wage. If he's willing to say that he will even maintain the filibuster that, that will keep uh, the John Lewis bill from being passed, which restores the voting rights, then he must also say that he's on the side of systemic racism. He cannot have it both ways. He cannot claim, on the one hand, to be a person of faith. He claims to be a person of faith. but And, and when the Christian faith demands that you care for the poor and the least of these, but then he turns around and says he will allow a filibuster that will keep policies from that would lift the, the poor and the least of these uh, 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 up. You can't have it both ways. And his claim that he's taken this position and going to use the filibuster to bring people together, there is absolutely no record in history anywhere that the filibuster made progress. If anything, the filibuster diluted bills and made us and, and not deal with issues that we should have dealt with, which is why we're still dealing with them today. When you mentioned the talking filibuster, there's an instance when uh, several senators talk for days and days and days on end, when in fact uh, Strom Thurmond from the, the state neighboring yours talked for 24 hours without stopping uh, in order to maintain a filibuster. What do you think of the prospect of bringing back that talking filibuster to the rules of the Senate today? No. We, I mean, there again, the history is clear. Um, 60-some days of filibustering helped to dilute the Civil Rights Act of 64. 
by the time it was passed, it was a great piece of legislation, but it was not the piece of legislation it should have been. If it had been, we wouldn't have needed the Voting Rights Act of 65. That was cut out because of the filibuster. Strom Thurmond was over 24 hours. He blocked and weakened the 1957 Civil Rights Act. If you go back in history, uh, 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 as I said, great parts of the labor laws were, were and, and uh, were, were blocked and, and, and weakened. So we don't need just having a talking filibuster. I mean, it, you could say it's better because these people have to say what they want, what they're going to do. But what we need is no filibuster. We need, and this is what Democrats need to understand. When they claim that they want to hold on to the filibuster because one day they may not be in power. If there was no filibuster and Democrats passed a bold agenda that spoke to the, the, the one third of this electorate that's poor and low wealth, that lifted from the bottom, bottom, that made sure people had health care and, and, and public education, and, uh, more money for public education and living wages, they wouldn't have to worry about being in office because people's votes would follow those who passed the policies that imp uh, positively impacted their lives. So we don't need a talking filibuster. We don't need a solid filibuster. We need honest, open debate in the United States Senate and are voting on these issues. I mean, it's a fact that the 50, 40, the 50 Republican senators represent 25 million fewer voters than do the 50 Democratic senators as it is. So the idea of democracy really, it, the, the minority is already protected in the idea of, of the so-called minor, minority or majority or democracy in the Senate. Right. That's just a false argument. You know, those arguments go all the way back to the slave states arguing that created the three-fourths uh, compromise, three-fifths compromise. Uh, you know, when, when they say they want to hold on to a rule in the Senate, they're talking about hold on to a rule and a tool that was created by an all-white male Senate that was hell-bent on at first maintaining the racial caste system and then all and secondly maintaining an economic system that catered to the corporations rather than to the people uh, we should not have a country and i'm from the south but we should not have a country where the senators who represent 25 million less people uh and they don't even represent what the people in their own states want 70 to 80 percent of people in the south want health care and living wages and increasing the minimum wage. So many of these people know that even the South is not really conservative. That's why they focus so hard in the South on voter suppression, because they know in fair elections, they really can't win in the South with the changing demographic and the, and the possibility of black and brown and white and indigenous people organizing and voting together in fusion coalitions. It was Dr. King in 1965, the end of the Selma to Montgomery March. He said something that we should never forget. He said the threat of the black and white masses voting together in a way that would change the economic systems of this nation and overrule what he called the aristocracy is what created the segregated society 
and what created voter suppression. The very threat of black and white people and others voting together in a way that would provide wages and union rights and, and, and so forth is what created suppression and segregation. We should never forget that. What we see in the filibuster, what we see in voter suppression is all the result of fear and senators who want to cater to the ruling class and the corporate interests. And they know they cannot win unless they uh, suppress the vote in the, in, at the ballot box and then undermine debate in the vote in the United States Senate. You mentioned Senator Manchin in West Virginia and the fact that 352,000 of his constituents uh, are in favor the raising the minimum wage. What can be done to well, arouse those people and in some way or another convince Senator Manchin uh, to um, um, answer to the better angels of his nature or to punish him? You know, well, there's 352,000 people in his state that make less than $15 an hour. And and so, and so and when we went there, the Poor People's Campaign is there doing just that. We're organizing people from the mountains in Appalachia and the streets of Charleston. That's what has to happen. We're bringing together black and white and brown people in the state along with faith leaders because he's never really, really been challenged in that state and pushed. You know, his, when he first got elected, he got it. He, his first time he ran statewide, he lost. And then he got elected when he promised to do right by the miners and the unions. And, and I understand that. But now he's hurting the miners. He's hurting the, the, the labor. He's hurting the people from his own uh, home area up in the Appalachia. I mean, we, we've talked to a lot of people up there uh, who are just disgusted with the position he's taken. They're saying that, you know, he should be doing better than that. You know, he should change like Robert Byrd changed. You know, when Robert Byrd went into the Senate, he was you know, affiliated with the Ku Klux Klan. He, he, he helped to filibuster the 1957 Civil Rights Act. But then he changed, and he became a staunch advocate for uh, for civil rights. Uh, now, he didn't oppose the filibuster per se, uh, but we don't know where Robert Byrd would have come to if he was still living today because he started to recognize that many of the rules of the Senate were being used in a way to hurt uh, particularly poor and low-wealth people. Actually, the bird rule was supposed to be used to stop corporations from having so much power as opposed to the way Manchin is using it as a way to block uh, legislation that would uplift the people. So we're organizing in in in, uh, um, in, in West Virginia among poor and low-wealth people, among clergy. I, I was with a few Mondays ago a group of women up in Appalachia in West Virginia and they are, they were, it was on a Monday, one of our ball Mondays. They literally were also having Taco Monday. And I asked them, why were they selling tacos on Monday? They said, because we do this every Monday so that we can help other women afford their feminine supplies during their menstrual cycle. And I say that because it, it, to, to hear it like that turns your stomach. These are women, poor, low wealth, working, not, you know, less than a living wage, less than 15 in Manson State. And they are beginning to organize and come together in that state and saying to him, uh, this is not the way it should be. And clergy are doing the same thing. We just got to put pressure on him 
in every way. And, and not only on him, but, but anybody, Republican or Democrat, but especially Democrats, because Democrats ran, their party platform says that they are for 15 and a union. Their party platform says that they're for living wages and health care and expanding public education. That's what their platform says. So we don't need people who, who, who run for office. And then when you get in office, you change. The only reason Magic is even in the majority party now is because of two Congress people, senators from Georgia, both of whom support ending the filibuster, both of whom support uh, living wages, 15 and, and, and with an indexing up, both of whom support expanding health care. So, you know, he and others uh, that are playing, that, that, that's not a game. This is serious business. And what we intend to do is continue to keep the pressure on. There's a lot of conversation going on now about a need for some of the, if they're Democrats and they want to hold on to filibusters, then maybe they need to be primaried at some point. Uh, uh, because what we need now is a Senate that works and has honest debate. Because otherwise, what we continue to do is stop, pass, stop the passings of policy the passing of policies that could move us forward, and we keep being stuck. We, you know, can't deal with gun rights because of filibuster. Can't deal with voting rights filibuster. Can't deal with health care. That's not a functioning government. That's a dysfunctioning government. Yet the progress is inevitable. Uh, the three fifths rule is abolished. The um, um, Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, a, a super majority of the Supreme Court made that decision, and. Uh, same with uh, so many others. The the progress seems, the march to progress seems inevitable. The demographics are changing. Oh, we Why, what's the urgency now yeah, we, when, in fact, the, 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 the white nationalist party or the white nationalist mentality cannot hold on because they're dying out and their numbers are being outgrown? Well, you're right. There, there, there's more people for progress and they are for regression and eventually we do win but we don't just need eventual wins we need some immediate wins you know it took 50 some years to beat that Plessy versus Ferguson think about we won but think about how much damage was done in that period of time you know we beat that lynching but think how much you know we we lost in that period you know we won uh social security but it wasn't until in 1935, but it wasn't until 1954 that people in the agrarian culture and the domestic culture were able to pay in, which meant many, many black people and even women and even white women for, for 17, for 19 years, they were not able to pay in social security. You know, at some point we have to understand that justice delayed is a form of justice denied. We celebrate that we win. But in a democracy, it shouldn't have to take this long. And and a rule that's not even in the Constitution shouldn't have this much power to delay. Yes, uh, white supremacists, uh, the demographics are shifting. Yes, ever since 2008 when uh, President Obama won North Carolina and we saw a coalition come together in the Deep South that won Virginia, North Carolina, and Florida, it, it showed the holes. It predicted Georgia. Surely we, 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 we are at a precipice of transformation. So we must fight for it to happen immediately. But if it doesn't happen immediately, we're going to continue to fight for it to happen until it happens. 
But what we're saying is there is what Dr. King called the fierce urgency of now. Right now, over 140 million people are poor and low wealth in this nation prior to the pandemic, with millions more being added since then. Right now, we have 87 million people uninsured or underinsured. Right now, if we don't take certain actions, it's going to take 10 to 15 years for people to recover just where they were prior to this pandemic. Uh, right now, we have over 300 bills in, in state houses that are trying to roll back and suppress the right to vote. So we have right now problems that need right now answers because if these things are blocked and if these, uh, the negative, if these, the positives are blocked and the negatives are enacted, it could hold up the progress that will come in inevitably, but it could hold it up for 10, 15, 20 years, which is not good for the democracy because too many people get hurt. I often say a lot of the policies that we're blocking are really about life and death. You know, before the pandemic, a study at Columbia University said 750 people died a day from poverty and low wealth. 750 people, quarter million people a year. You know, People die when we don't expand health care, not just from the pandemic. They die from the denial of health care. People die from the effects of poverty. And we have to choose life in this moment and decide America's really got to make a choice. And that choice is we're not going to accept death any longer. Death doesn't just come at the hands of a racist police who lynches you by knee on a, on a street corner in front of a video camera. Death comes by bad public policy and no filibuster, no, no minority leader being able to say, you don't have the 60 votes, so we're not even going to discuss this. Understand what the filibuster says. We're not even going to discuss it, let alone vote on it. That is no way to run a democracy. And we have waited long enough and we need to fight now for ending the democracy, uh, the filibuster. And Democrats should do it, but they shouldn't do it just for partisan reasons. They should do it as a matter of principle. And when they do it, they should immediately pass the kind of public policy that will impact the lives of the poorest, low wealth from the bottom up. And then people will see what a functioning democracy ought to look like. Reverend Dr. William Barber, president of the Repairs of the Breach. Thanks for talking with us about what you call that regressive piece of public policy, the filibuster. Thank you so much. Take care. That was Reverend Dr. William Butler, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign with WPFW News Director Askia Muhammad. Don't forget, you can follow our news team on Twitter at WPFWMMQB, or follow the station itself at WPFWDC. Visit WPFW.org to listen live and to become a sustainer of listener-supported radio in the nation's capital. Next up, I talk Rwanda's long crisis of political repression with Claude Gadabuke, survivor of the Rwandan civil war and genocide and executive director of the African Great Lakes Action Network. April 7th marked the 27th anniversary of the genocide, which killed up to 800,000 people and displaced many thousands more. 
but mass violence and political repression didn't end with the genocide. Tens of thousands have been arrested, disappeared, tortured, or even killed in the decades since. Despite the high stakes, Rwandans at home and abroad are fighting back against this repression. So I want to start by giving our listeners a bit of background, um, just to sort of familiarize ourselves with the situation in Rwanda. Can you briefly describe the trajectory of the rule of Paul Kagame and the Rwandan Patriotic Front, specifically in terms of human rights? I mean, I guess to ask it another way, have there been notable shifts in the government's attitude towards human rights over the last couple of decades since the end of the genocide? Um. The notable shifts are, I think, mostly because there is a brighter light being shone on it. Um, but kind of the trajectory, if we're talking just post-genocide, because you know the RPF existed way before the genocide and was committing major human rights atrocities, you know, massacres and things like that. When they first started their war in 1990, you know, for the first three years, I mean, there were major, major atrocities, including you know, terror attacks, gathering people in groups and um, throwing grenades into crowds. You know, they would lure people, telling them that they will feed them in areas that they occupied and, and instead they would kill them. So there is actually a famous saying in Rwanda that um, they uh, reported to a meeting and they met God, basically. Uh, if I can, you know, that's kind of loosely translating the saying, meaning, you know, they, they went to, they were called to meetings and never came back because they, they got killed. A lot of people get disappeared. Um, but the RPF has been very good at uh, PR in hiding their crimes. So even, you know, throughout the genocide, uh, they were committing atrocities, um, which are largely unknown to the public. Then after the genocide, um, they continued with um, extrajudicial killings, disappearance, um, enforced disappearances, and um, also uh, massacres continued. Their reports left and right, I mean, the Gersony report, um, the Garretan report, um, UN reports, all showing um, all of these uh, massacres uh, to the tune of sometimes, you know, right after the genocide, there was an estimated 30,000 people that were being killed on a monthly basis. Um, and this was, uh, this was reported at the UN tribunal um, in, um, that was set up to basically try the crimes committed in the year of 1994, from January 1st to December 31st of 1994. However, so far, no RPF um, of officer has been charged by that court. That court is already closed. Um, so Kagame continued to pretty much operate in, in the RPF and his government, um, continued to operate with impunity. Then um, they actually exported the human rights violations to the Congo, pursued Rwandan refugees who were in basically large tent cities, if I can uh, describe it to the, the public, if you can think of a tent city, you know, very large sprawling, hundreds of thousands of people living in the same, basically very small space. 
Um, and they went and destroyed those camps. They not only did that, but they committed atrocities against Congolese people, rape, uh, looting, mass murder. And uh, in 2010, 2010, the UN released a report called the UN Mapping Report, which basically um, say, stated that um, crimes committed, crimes of genocide were committed in the Congo. Um, but all of this has gone untalked about, unnoticed, you know, the multiple invasions of the Congo. And then coming back to Rwanda, between the year 2005 and 2015, there is a, a new report that just, um, it's not that new now, it's, it, was, it was back in January, that showed that there was almost 600,000 young people between the ages of 10 and 24 that went missing uh, between the years 2005 and 2016. Um, so enforced disappearance is a big thing in, in Rwanda. Um, the, there are annual reports by uh, the State Department, the US State Department that repeatedly talk about you know, the repression against political opponents. Um, and then more alarmingly, um, the treatment of uh, dissidents and journalists in terms of you know jailing beatings torture torture is a big thing it's a recurring theme the enforced disappearance of the common people like hundreds and sometimes thousands of people go missing every year and as and as i just said in a period of 10 years you know if you just average it out it was like 50,000 young people were missing or six almost 60,000 young people were going missing on an annual basis um, that is still happening today. Now it's more um, today, it's more visible and I think it's because of technology and social media. People are able to report on these things. You can see uh, there's a much bigger highlight on the assassinations of uh, say uh, political opponents inside of Rwanda and abroad. In the past, when it happened, it, would, it may get talked about, it may not even make it in the news, especially in Western news. But now with uh, social media, people are able to spread the news. Uh, and so I will give an example of like the recent, last year, uh, the assassination of uh, popular gospel music, uh, um, gospel musician, Kizito Mexico, who was found dead in a cell, in a police cell after being arrested. Uh, within four days of being arrested, he died in a cell. The government of Rwanda claimed that he committed suicide using a sheet. Uh, which, of course, no one believes that. Um, it, as far as I'm concerned, it's an assassination. You know, they they um, assassinated him because he had already been incarcerated for four years and never committed suicide. He had been out of prison for a year and a half, never committed suicide. But all of a sudden, when they arrested him, um, he committed suicide. Uh, so uh, then there's the pursuit of dissident voices in the country where people are basically um, discriminated against, for example, in terms of employment. If you are a critic of the government, you, you can't get a job. Sometimes you get fired. There, there is another artist, another musician, Emable Karasira, who um, was a university lecturer, lost his job for criticizing the government on YouTube. Um, that's how egregious it is. Uh, there is a, a poet, uh, Bahati Musa, who um, has gone missing after um, putting out, you know, critical poems of the government. 
But you know, these are individual cases to highlight the major cases. Now, the biggest one, since in today we're you know we're still commemorating the genocide, the biggest one, or most well known, is most people do not know Rwanda. Uh, they might even think it's Wakanda or Zamunda. Like they might not even think that it's a real country. And most people who know about it know know it because they've seen the film Hotel Rwanda. I mean, they can't even find it on a map, but they've seen the film Hotel Rwanda. The real life hero of the film Hotel Rwanda, his name, Paul Lucesa Bagina, um, sheltered over 1,200 people during this genocide. And as a survivor of this genocide, it was hard for anybody to shelter even a single individual during the Rwandan genocide um, because the killing the killings were brutal. The atrocities were brutal. The, the militias who were committing the genocide were, they were brutal. And so it was a burden to, to shelter somebody, but he used the hotel to shelter over 1200 people. And because he's such a critic of the government of Rwanda, and because he has such a large platform around the world, um, they decided that they had to neutralize him. They had to stop him. So in August of 2020, that is almost four months ago, it was late August um, uh, 2020, almost eight months ago, they, abduct, they kidnapped him from Dubai, took him back to Rwanda, and today he is uh, facing charges of uh, terrorism. And this is a cultural um, charge that the Rwandan government uses against pretty much all dissidents. The gospel singer that I talked about, he's been accused of, um, he was accused of terrorism. Um, and again, he is a gospel singer. Um, and uh, well, he's, he's, he, he was, he got killed. Um, then, you know, there's Paul Rusesabagina, there is um, um, Victoire Ingabire, who was also, um, she ran against Paul Kagame uh, in 2010, or she wanted to run against Paul Kagame in 2010, and she was arrested and charged with, you know, crimes related to terrorism, among others. And so this is something that's used against many, many critics. Now, Paul Rusesabagina was kidnapped, taken to Rwanda, is facing these charges, and recently, um, in February, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it was February, uh, definitely, uh, on Al Jazeera, Rwanda's Minister of Justice, Johnston Busingye, admitted that the government of Rwanda paid for the plane that kidnapped, that helped in the kidnapping of Paul Rusesawagina. So those are, that's kind of the trajectory of what's happened in Rwanda. And I know I started with the pre-genocide Rwanda, but post-genocide Rwanda is really, um, the what's happening in Rwanda is alarming. Uh, lastly, I will give another example. Again, people are being punished for simply having an opinion. There's a woman named uh, Idamange. Um, she came out in late January and started expressing herself, expressing dissent on social media using her YouTube channel. Within a few weeks, she was arrested. Today, she's facing charges. She's being held. And, uh, and, and one of the accusations is that she's calling people to, to overthrow the government. So having an opinion 
in Rwanda that does not agree with the government and the RPF and Paul Kagame is treated as uh, creating uh, some kind of rebellion in the country. Even journalists who report on um, the mistreatment of citizens by the government are being, um, they're being arrested. And uh, there are cases where they are being held for months and months in pretrial, um, uh, you know, in, in, in pretrial detention. So all of those are, you know, just the things that I can highlight, but I can go on and on for, you know, forever. Uh, I don't want to bore the audience with, you know, all of these examples, but this is just, these are just the highlights, you know. Sure, that's, that's really helpful. I wonder, is there any consistency to the kinds of critiques that these dissidents are making and... Uh, or is the government just treating any sort of critique of itself as an existential threat and cracking down on it? It's generally any critique of the government is, is they crack down on it really hard. People are afraid to say anything, uh, to criticize any government policy uh, or anything, any practice by the government. And of course, um, even though it, appears that Rwanda is run by a civilian government. It's really a military state. Um, and so it's, you know, civilians are treated any, any dissent, basically, any dissent. There's no consistency. I mean, for example, the journalists will report on the destruction of people's houses without compensation and they'll get arrested. And, you know, then a, dissident or a you know someone that does not agree with the with government policies will talk about the atrocities in the congo and they will you know, they'll arrest them uh, if they talk about education policies like the poet um, uh, bahati musa that i talked about they go missing um if they just any kind of um there's no tolerance for any criticism in Rwanda by Rwandans. And in fact, even when it's not done by Rwandans, there's, you know, you can see, um, you know, Paul Kagame is, is, he'll lash out at the West, which by the way, um, he gets all his power from Western support. You know, he, um, as a US citizen, it actually pains me because uh, for me, my some of my tax money goes to support his government and then he turns around and uses that money to repress and sometimes kill my own people and so um western support has been a a big big major um enabler for paul kagame both financially militarily sorry i said both uh it's been um western support has been a major enabler and protector for Paul Kagame financially, militarily, diplomatically, and politically, because again, he's able to commit all these crimes and get away with them. Um, and, and, and again, he will lash out at the West, even you know, bite the hand that feeds him when they criticize him. That's where I was going. Sure. It seems like most of the folks that were talking about the dissidents being disappeared are grassroots activists or artists or journalists and not necessarily, a, you know, 
people in positions of official power. And I, and I wonder, is there a robust official opposition in Rwanda? And if so, what are they doing in response to these disappearances? Bingo. Rwanda does not tolerate dissent. So what they have, they, there is some opposition. Um, it's a couple of opposition parties inside of Rwanda uh, that are unregistered. So anybody that is not inside of the system, anybody that is not aligned with Kagame, they just don't allow them to register. They don't allow them to legally operate uh, as a party. So they cannot, for example, as a party contest in the elections. You know, they cannot present members, uh, their members in, in the elections. Um, and so some of the opponents that I would highlight include uh, uh, a woman, uh, Victoire Ingabire, again, that I spoke about, who um, tried to challenge Paul Kagame in 2010 and was instead arrested and spent eight years in prison. Another woman, Diane Rigara, um, ran in uh, 2017, she was awarded with a one-year uh, sentence. Uh, she actually wasn't sentenced. She just spent a whole year in jail going through a trial. Um, other opponents have also been jailed. Um, there, you know, I'd, I'd like to highlight th those women because Rwanda also presents itself as one of the most progressive countries in terms of empowering women. But really, in reality, the women in parliament though they make up the majority, they just don't have any power. The military runs the country. And so the women who have decided to take a stand uh, have been, have paid a heavy price. Um, so there isn't a major opposition in Rwanda, not because opposition in Rwanda would not succeed, but because the government actually just uh, cracks down on opposition so hard cracks down on any dissenting opinion so hard and does not even allow for them to go through the process, complete the process and be able to register and operate legally in the country. And so that's why you see it as you know grassroots and um, either from within the country, it's very grassroots and outside of the country is where you find multiple political parties uh, and a lot of um, um, activities you know, within the activist community. You mentioned how Kagame lashes out at the West when the West criticizes it. And, and so I, I wonder, you know, kind of turning to, to solutions, what states on the continent itself uh, can do to try to mitigate political repression? I know there's a peer review mechanism within the African Union. Can you talk about that and other tools that African states have to try to mitigate political repression in, in Rwanda? Yeah, so there is multiple mechanisms within the um, the African Union and also within the regional bodies. You know, uh, the Rwanda is a part of the East African Community and the the Central African Community. However, uh, because of the way you know the these organizations are put together, so if, for example, the East African Community is you know half of the members are dictators like Kagame. And so they have no interest, there's no political will to basically uh, out themselves. The Central African community is the same. Because um, you know, you're talking about basically the belt of Africa, 
you know, that's what I call it. You know, when you look at the Horn of Africa, starting from Djibouti down to, you know, um, Kenya, and then come all the way across to Cameroon and down to Angola, there's maybe 15 countries. There's hardly any countries there that have real institutions, um, you know, in terms of, um, in terms of holding the government of Rwanda accountable or even doing something about it or pushing those mechanisms. Had Rwanda been a part of, say, the South, Southern African Development Community, SADC, which has very, is a very strong institution, it's the most progressive region of Africa, uh, most stable and most democratic, there would be uh, mechanisms in place that would, they, they would actually uh, pursue. And, and hold the government of Rwanda accountable. Had Rwanda been a part of uh, ECOWAS, which is the West African uh, Community Economic um, uh, Alliance of countries, things would be, there would be more, much more accountability, but Rwanda just happens to be in a part of the world, in a part of Africa that is the most volatile and most uh, violent and has, you know, is rife with dictators. Um, so the geography does not help. The African Union itself, is in my opinion really a very um, corrupt organization in terms of um, dealing with human rights um, it's they pay lip service to it and it seems to me i mean when you look at it and even the way they rotate the heads of the african union you know it rotates between those countries that are talked about you know in southern and west africa where they're most democratic and most stable and those other countries that are rife with dictatorship. So they kind of, there is no political will to actually do anything there. Um, but there is hope because there are alternatives that are coming up. Um, you know, things like, to me, um, organizations like Africans Rising, which has a collection of <coughs> over 800 organizations, which were a part of um, over 800, um, organizations on the continent, they provide the alternative to holding accountable um, these uh, leaders in a way that is unified because the issues of Africans in many places of these types of dictatorships and repression are common. So there's, you know, it provides a common front to actually deal with these things. Um, the other thing, there's also a responsibility. So, um, you know, you asked me about the African continent, but there is a responsibility from Western donors also who just watch it happen. They see it happen and they turn a blind, you know, a blind eye to it and they pay lip service to it. They write reports. They do not enforce those reports. And when they do, these are enforced um, in a politicized way where, say, Kagame was somebody that the West did not desire. They would do anything and everything um, to pretty much hold him accountable or at least stop the aid, stop the support, stop the military support and stop the money flow and stop him from looting the Congo and basically conducting commerce, illegal commerce internationally. But there's no political will for that. Um, Although that is coming because more and more of the citizens of these countries are being informed. And I think it's a good thing. Um, change doesn't come without awareness, without action. 
action doesn't come without our awareness in what is happening now and you know which i'm grateful for you even putting on this program people are being informed and able to actually get involved and take action and hold their own governments accountable for their own money our own tax dollars you know uh and so back to the african continent i i do think that what's going on with um you know, uh, organizations like Africans Rising and others are going to to bring about the change that that we're looking for, the accountability that we're looking for. My faith is not so much in the African Union or even some of these uh, regional bodies, just because of number one, where Rwanda's located, and two, because the African Union is kind of a mix and a club of dictators and non-dictators. Sure, that that makes sense, and. Lastly, to kind of piggyback off this this topic uh, and and broaden it, maybe I've had conversations with experts recently on the conflict in Ethiopia, uh, on political movements in Nigeria, etc. And it, it seems like there's something of a growing consensus that the African continent is facing a closure of political and civic space. I wonder if you could talk about that notion in the context of, of Rwanda, particularly, and the African Great Lakes region generally. I know you mentioned the sort of, the sort of belt as being a collection of highly dictatorial leaders. Um, do you see this, this closing of political and civic space as being an appropriate way to describe what's happening on the continent and in, in the Great Lakes region? Absolutely. But I guess, um, so to say that it's a closing is almost like there was open uh, openness before. Um, I think what is happening is more the world is seeing it now. Um, almost like so many things were happening before cell phone cameras. And, you know, people we just didn't give it a lot of credit. And now with cell phone cameras, everything is captured. That's to me, that's what is happening. So the closure, the closure of uh, civic space is not a recent thing. It's just right now it's more visible. And in Rwanda, it's absolutely true. Um, it's a, total, a totalitarian uh, military dictatorship. When you think about how the country is ruled, you know, all of the, I mean, people get punished for having an opinion. Uh, people are too afraid to even discuss individually as me and you would do if we were at a coffee shop or you know or a bar or something people don't even do that um politicians opponents are being punished for simply being opponents um there is there is a different type of uh, epidemic in in rwanda um which is the disappearance of supporters of political opponents you know, I spoke about Victoria Ngavide. Many, many of her um, supporters have gone missing. Um, journalists, the closing down of journalistic space is not new, but now we're seeing more of it because, again, uh, communication and technology has allowed us to be a little bit closer to the situation. But, I mean, journalists are being arrested for reporting on court cases, which are supposed to be open. Um, they are being arrested for shining a light on various atrocities, and they are being prevented from reporting on certain incidents 
So uh, if I can give an example real quickly, um, again, going back to uh, the Hotel Rwanda hero, Paul Cesabagina, he's being charged with um, uh, some rebel attacks in Rwanda, which when these attacks happened, were not even reported on. Uh, when you look at the newspapers in Rwanda at the time, there's nothing about you know the, those attacks. So um, again, either the attacks didn't happen or uh, the government is preventing the media from even from reporting on those things and those are public safety issues. you know so um, you know when I look at you know the statement is correct, uh, the only thing that I would correct on that is this isn't new. This has been happening for a while. And speaking even on Ethiopia, um, there was the, the previous uh, prime minister, Meles Zenawi, was a brutal dictator, uh, highly supported by the West. Uh, and so, you know, when you look at how many political prisoners he had and how many uh, massacres he committed, um, you know that, and how many journalists were punished, and I mean the atrocities that he committed. Right now, Ethiopia's, you know, they they have a war, but there is it. It would be um, an injustice to say that the repression or the closing of space is new, especially knowing what was happening in his era before he was uh, before he died. And so, again, that's just to highlight the fact that these aren't new. Um, these are things that been, that's been happening. And I am glad that the world is paying more attention to it now. Sure, I agree with you. Um, those are the, uh, my prepared questions. Do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, my closing thoughts are, um, I would like to pay my respects, especially to all of the victims of the genocide in Rwanda. The Rwandan genocide was, was really brutal. Um, I remember how horrific, how horrible it was, and I'm grateful that I survived. I wanna comfort all the survivors and, uh, and, and the families that lost their, um, their loved ones. And that is uh, Tutsi people, Hutu people, and Twa people, and foreigners, um, but also everybody in the region that's been affected by the atrocities in, by, you know, in post-genocide Rwanda, especially the Congolese people. That was Claude Garabuke, survivor of the Rwandan civil war and genocide, and executive director of the African Great Lakes Action Network. For this evening's final conversation, WPFW News Director and Monday Morning QB host Askia Mohammed talks with Rusty Hassan, musician and host of Thursday Late Night Jazz on WPFW, about the value of live jazz and what has been lost to the pandemic. And then when I got into radio, I just became part of the, you know, seeing music live was, was so important to me to see the performances at the clubs going back to the 70s with Pigfoot here in the Northeast, the, the one step down in, in the 80s and 90s. And of course, Blues Alley all during that period of time where 
you know, I saw people like Dizzy Gillespie and, and Nancy Wilson. And then with the Kennedy Center, I had an opportunity to take my grandson to concerts. And then later when he went off to college to take my, my granddaughter, you know, my, my granddaughter met, met Jerry Allen, Randy Weston, and all these great artists backstage by, by being able to see the performance in concert and in, in the clubs. It, it, it's really been, been an important part of the music for me. Why is seeing the performance in person important? You get to, to, to see the musicians and how they perform and how, what, what they're doing with their instruments and uh, how they're interacting with the audience. And, and for me personally, it's also interacting with the audience members, you know, talking about the performance during, during intermission or, or when it's in a club after the performance is over with. And then talking with the musicians themselves. I got to know McCoy Tyner over the years by talking with him at the bar at Blues Alley. He got to know me so much so that, that when I emceed a performance for, for the uh, DC Jazz Festival at uh, an outdoor concert, he sent me the recording of the concert with my introduction. He tracked down the WPFW address to mail me the, 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 uh, the CD of the, of the concert. And, and it's that, that kind of interaction that I've had with my heroes by hearing them live that's been so important to me. Now we're faced, as the pandemic apparently is about to ease, with the loss of just about every live jazz venue in Washington, D.C. How tragic or how important is that? It, that's, that's really important. It's major uh, because of the, the number of clubs that, that, that closed at the same time. Uh, you know, uh, New Street Twins, JoJo's, all, all the, the places in, in that area. Uh, the, the closing of Alice's Jazz and Cultural Society on 12th Street Northeast was was really a loss for me because it was close to home and it was really the, uh, you, you know, where you, you could see older folks like, like me, you know, been involved with the music for years, you know, who want to hang out too late. You know, that, that's been really, really tragic. But I, I, I know Westminster Church, uh, you know, it's, it's long time equivalent, will reopen when, when, when the pandemic lifts. Uh, Blues Alley's been closed, but uh, uh, Harry Schnipper's probably going to, if he, if he doesn't get the, the lease worked out, he'll reopen somewhere else. But it's going to take a while. I, I understand that up in Baltimore, uh, Keystone Corner is, is going to be reopening soon. So there's... There's some bright spots, bright spots coming along. The Kennedy Center uh, under Jason Moran will, will be, certainly reopen with some, some great programs. So, so things will happen. Things will, will take a while to recover. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been really hard. This is the longest period of time that, that I have not been out to a, to a concert or a club since I was about 13 years old. It's, it's been really hard. But I'm optimistic about uh, the opportunity for, for a revival. Wow, that's an amazing statistic. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking, in Washington, we've had losses before there was a corridor, uh, 17th and Rhode Island, Northeast, uh, several clubs, the Pigfoot, uh, um, uh, and others. Moore's Love and Peace, Mr. Wise, yeah, those are all my spots, yes. And so they went yeah. away, and the music didn't stop, so... Is this what's going on now? Um, the pandemic has caused. Is this worse than? It's worse. It, it is worse, but but uh, 
uh, again, the music music has gone through uh, some tumultuous times in the past, and, and it will uh, survive and thrive. You know, the festivals, uh, uh, Sonny Sumter and Willie Jenkins have, have plans for, for various aspects of keeping the, the DC Jazz Festival going. Paul Carr did the Mid-Atlantic Jazz Festival online. That'll be in person by next year, you know, as the pandemic recedes. So the festivals will be bringing the music back also. How joyous should the people in Washington be about the potential for this revival and the return of live performances? Well, they have to be, you know, joyous about it in terms of the opportunity to see the performers live. You know, uh, uh, Elijah Jamal Balbet has been doing what he calls pop-up concerts outdoors. So there's been a, a way of, of, of keeping things going. And, and when, you know, the spots start, new, new places reopen or uh, Westminster starts bringing the concerts back to the church on Friday night, you know, people have to be out there to support the music. I know we're going to be continuing for a while to be wearing masks and, and keeping things at a safe distance, but, uh, uh, you know, it'll be great to, to see the musicians in person. I, I'm really looking forward to it. I wonder, have you ever wanted to go to see a performer and then perhaps put it off and then found that that performer didn't perform again? Oh, yes, yes. No, you know that 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 that's, you know been a part of my life also. Uh, 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 Junior Cook was playing at the at the One Step Down one time, and I said, "Well, geez, I should go down there," and I didn't, you know. And and uh, and he passed sometime after that. Uh, you know that 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 certainly has happened to me, and so you know it's always been you know, really uh, compelling me to go for. The older artists, in particular, I, you know, it's like uh, seeing McCoy Tyner at the uh, uh, at uh, oh god, the Library of Congress was really important to me, and I didn't get a chance to go backstage to talk to him. It was really frail, uh, but he performed, and, and and I got to see him. So you know, it was those types of things that I, I I do now to make sure that that I can catch up with people, particularly uh, someone I may not have seen before. I can't think of anyone that you haven't seen. Maybe you missed a performance that you wanted to see, but is there anyone that, uh, I guess, going back to Lionel Hampton, that that's uh, uh, that's quite a ways back historically. Is there anyone that you wish that you might have seen perform? Oh live? yes, uh, someone significant to both of our lives, uh, Charlie Parker. <laughs> you know, I was. Uh, what nine years old when he passed? So nobody, nobody. I, I, I would take my grandson when he was seven to hear people perform. I mean, I remember, you know, hearing Dewey Redmond when he was that age. But uh, I, I can certainly remind him. But uh, for me, uh, if I had uh, somebody older into the music, drag a little collar around, and I saw a bird, I would certainly be uh, uh, reveling in that. So I mean, there's a a monetary thing about this. It, it's it's not about having CDs and selling records or selling CDs. It really is about becoming known to the public and performing live, which is the way that musicians make a living. And so, absolutely, you know, 
And so, so it's so important for, for an audience to, to support the performances, uh, you know, particularly now with, uh, uh, you know, CD sales, uh, a municipal part of, of, of what a, a musician does. And with all the streaming that, that, that audiences access music, it, it's really important to go out and support the musicians in person, you know, pay that cover charge and, and help support the, the, the music and the clubs that, that are, are presenting them. It, it really is absolutely essential. Is there a way to, is there any other way that artists without themselves being independently wealthy and not needing to be paid to perform, which is how many um, out of a thousand can that be? Very, 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 very few. Is there anything, any way to augment the, 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 the influence that money has over jazz music? Well, you know, uh, there, there is a, the way the music's been made available through, through various streaming services and things like that. What this pandemic has demonstrated is that, that, that people will, will support by paying to, to see the streaming of, of artists in, in the various venues that, that they, they've done without uh, an audience or with a small audience. Uh, Spike Wilner with, with Smalls up in New York has been streaming performances there. And as things have loosened up a little bit in New York City, he's been able to have a small audience come in. Uh, Todd Barkin up at uh, 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 Keystone Corner in Baltimore has done that, uh, as has Henry Wong with Andy Music. And, 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 and Blues Alley's been using uh, the National Press Club for performances under the auspices of Blues Alley. So the music has been, been presented and the, the artists have made, make, making somewhat of a living during that, that period of time that, that everything's been shut down. And that's making people aware that these, these venues will reopen and, and that folks can get out there to, to support the music uh, and to support the artists who really, you know, put their lives in, in, into this, this art form. These legendary venues like the legendary labels, record labels, really put a stamp on not just uh, presenting the music, but rather it's an imprimatur. It's, it's, it says this person deserves your attention because they are performing at Bohemian Caverns. But So what do we do to reestablish that sense of brand that happens from these st legendary venues going away? Well, sometimes, uh, you know, I, I know Davey Arborough has been working on uh, working with the owner of the, the, the structure where the Bohemian Caverns is located at, at 11th and U. And uh, when he's able to work something out to, to get it open under uh, the historical aspect of, of, of uh, an arts presentation place, it's important for, for people to support it, you know, because that, that, that name goes back to the, the Crystal Caverns of 1929 and the, the Bohemian Caverns where Ramsey Lewis recorded the in crowd and John Coltrane and Miles Davis performed, you know, so that, that's keeping it going. Um, other historic clubs have certainly, you know, changed locations over the years in New York City. So when, when Blues Alley, if it has to, to reopen in, in a different location, will still be Blues Alley. 
you know, so that, that as you call it, branding will, 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 would be a part of it. And, and younger artists can say, yeah, I, I, I performed it at Blues Alley. Or if things work out with the caverns and they, and they perform there, that, that part of branding, as you call it, will be solely a part of it. What do you look forward to in terms of this summer as a live jazz um, begins to sort of return? What, what are you expecting? What's, what, what's your biggest expectation? Well, uh, I, I, I see that Todd Barkin has the cookers lined up for uh, up, up at uh, Keystone Corners with uh, uh, Eddie Henderson on trumpet, Billy Hart on drums, uh, George Cables on the piano, Billy Harper on the tenor sax, uh, David Weiss. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to, to seeing these heroes of the music that, that, that I are my friends, you know, and, and so that, that that's one thing I'm, I'm looking forward to. Uh, uh, whatever things that the folks uh, with the DC Jazz Festival, with what, 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 what Sonny Sumter and, and, and Willie Jenkins line, have lined up for safe distancing performances outdoors uh, down on the waterfront, I, I will certainly be there. And, uh, I'm sure they'll recruit me to talk to some of the artists who are there, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm hoping Westminster Church will, will be able to to, to uh, start presenting concerts this summer. I, I will certainly be there with uh, with, with Brian Hamilton and Dick Smith to, to, to support what they're doing. Your grands are all off to college, so who are you going to take? Who, who, who's going to oh, chaperone your your? your... Boy, I, I'm going to have to. <laughs> I'll be I'll be running solo for a while. I'm so proud of my uh, granddaughter, truly. Uh, Looks like she'll she'll be going up to Middlebury College up in up in Vermont uh, this fall. Hopefully this summer something will be happening. Maybe the Kennedy Center will have a a performance I could take her to before she goes off. But uh, you know when when Kane came back from California from San Jose State, uh, we went to a, a number of performances at the Kennedy Center together. You know these, these grandchildren, they're the lows of my life will will still be be happy to go out with Grandpa whenever they're in town to hear some live jazz. To hear some live jazz. Rusty Hassan, thank you for talking with us. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been a real honor. That was Rusty Hassan, musician and host of Thursday Late Night Jazz on WPFW, in conversation with news director Askia Muhammad. That does it for our ninth episode of Friday Evening Fireside. Don't miss our regular Monday morning news program at 11 a.m. on WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. This Monday, we dig deep into questions of policing including a novel case targeting racially biased facial recognition software. Is the war in Afghanistan truly over? The House heard testimony on reparations, and the labor movement takes stock after a loss in Bessemer, Alabama. All that and more, Monday, 11 a.m., on WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. For WPFW News, this is Chris Bangert-Drowns, Signing off.